Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If you've never heard this show before, good news, super simple concept. We think almost everyone has had a teacher, coach, mentor, professor of some kind that inspired them and helped them get to the place that they're at today, and we want to hear about those people and talk to them. So who's the person that comes to your mind when we say that? Shoot us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu and tell us about them. Maybe they could be on the next episode of the show. Today on the podcast, we have not just a teacher, but a teacher of teachers. Lori Ellis Piper is the Dean of the College of Education at Northern Illinois University. And we talked about what drives her to want to help mold the next generation of educators, how today's aspiring teachers are a bit different than 10 years ago, her career-spanning literacy work, and how COVID-19 has changed how student teachers prepare to go into the classroom for the first time. That's another really rewarding thread that I've seen sort of be elevated during the pandemic. Just that commitment to saying, like, as a teacher, I am a change maker. As a teacher, I am a community builder. As a teacher, I am, you know, about building a better future for our nation, one child at a time. Before we get into my conversation, I do have one more story for you. So as we all know, students have just spent an entire year, a lot of them e-learning, stuck at home often with their parents. And I got to talk to some of those parents about what it was like being locked down with their kids, helping with homework, and how it feels to send them back to school, or in some cases, keep them home. Janine Sostick wanted to make the best of a scary situation. COVID-19 had just shut down schools, and her DeKalb Middle and High School kids were stuck at home with her, trying to get their footing with online learning. Had these grand plans of us sitting together at the dining room table, bonding, laughing, you know, <laughs> like we're doing a group project with ice cubes sparkling and in our drinks and sunlight filtering through the windows. But they actually had a completely different idea. And so um, I worked at the dining room table, and they worked in their bedrooms with the blinds drawn in their beds, lights off. And even if it wasn't the family learning paradise Sostek imagined, she says she was able to bond with her kids in a way she probably wouldn't have been able to without the pandemic-induced time together. And recently, it made her toss and turn at the prospect of them returning to school in person. My kids were very split in the beginning, uh, one leaning towards wanting to go back, one that didn't want anything to do with it. And they said they both are really glad that they've got to go back and have that routine and have that connection with their friends and their teachers. And she says the first time she got to see the marching band perform live again, she cried. Mary is a DeKalb mom with three kids in the district, from preschool all the way to high school. Two of her kids are on 504 plans for students with disabilities, and like many students, her high school son has also struggled with depression during COVID, which has made it challenging for him to engage and ask questions online. He just couldn't connect remotely, so when he started to go back two days a week, we started to see a huge improvement, and he was kind of excited about school. Stephanie Renee has three kids in the district and has been about as cautious as possible during the pandemic. Just before school shut down, her young daughter was hospitalized and nearly died of influenza. So when DeKalb Public Schools announced plans to bring back students in person, Renee decided to keep her kids home. It was a tough call, particularly because she sees the value of her kids getting to see their friends and talk face-to-face with their teachers. One of my kids, unfortunately, gets ignored. 
every time he asked for help. And it took me a minute to, to catch on to what was happening. She says she doesn't blame the teachers, and she knows they're working as hard as they can to simultaneously help students in person and online. If they gave me the option to do e-learning, I'm going to opt out for e-learning again because the pandemic isn't over. It's nowhere near over. Renee cites schools in the area recently having to quarantine students and some switching to remote learning after positive COVID cases. It hasn't been all bad. She says her kids have opened up to her more than ever, and academically, her son who wears hearing aids has greatly benefited from getting to rewind and re-listen to online classes. Tina Holtz is a teacher, and once she came back in person, she started to feel better about her fifth-grade daughter, Fiona, returning in person in Sycamore. Fiona also really wanted to be back at Southeast Elementary. I wanted to be a fifth grader and be social and have a friend group and a squad. <laughs> really happened for me when I was remote learning, but now that I'm back to school, I have a squad. Tina says her daughter's first reading unit back was on poetry, and it inspired Fiona to write her own poems about how it feels to go back to school after a year learning at home. Poetry that just earned her first prize at a local 4-H competition. This is called Going Back to School. A wave of youth trickling in once more to a tall building. My world is but I love to be dizzy. Many families have lost loved ones during the pandemic, and most schools are still trying to figure out what exactly next year looks like. And many parents hope they can stay this close to their kids, maybe without being locked inside together. up and see my happiness. Content. I smell the smell. Feel the feel. See the sight for sore eyes. The sign. And it says Southeast. All right, now it's time for my conversation with the teacher of teachers, head of the NIU College of Education, Dr. Lori Alish Piper. I live in an apartment building, and on the first floor, there's some kids who I think are still learning at least partially remotely because every few days, and I just heard it like 15 minutes ago, and it, you know, and actually I'm kind of hoping it happens now because I feel like that'd be some nice audio in the background is that there's a kid that's like practicing the saxophone. <laughs> and I don't know if he like has to step outside to do it or something like that, but every once in a while at like 9 a.m. It's it's like on every, you know, the first Tuesday of every month when the sirens <laughs> go off, yes. but an alto sax that's being practiced. Oh, outside. that's so funny. That's so funny. I remember when I was a, a fifth grade teacher and that's the first year in our school district that kids could join the band and the orchestra yes. yeah. and they were terrible and you would hear them playing. It would be just this discordant wail of sound and you'd be like, what is that? And um, then they'd have their concert where it would just be like these random sounds. And, oh. But that, that was always amazing to me by the time they were in sixth grade and certainly by the time they were in middle school, they were really good. But boy, in fifth grade, it was brutal. <laughs> I remember we had the same thing. And for whatever reason, you know, I decided that I wanted to be in the band in fifth grade. And I don't know why, but I went with clarinet as my first choice. Okay. Okay. And the issue I discovered was that they would schedule like your lessons like once or twice a week to be at the same time as gym class. And so, <laughs> and so I had to make an executive decision and me at like 10 or 11 was like kickball clarinet. Yeah, that's and, brutal. And so I had to really like air clarinet my way through those, you know, concerts in fifth grade. So I suppose no noise was maybe just as good as me trying to horribly play a few yeah. notes on the clarinet. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's nothing like the sound of a violin being played by a fifth grader who's just picked up the violin for the first time. Yeah. Oh. It sounds like a dying cat. I hate to say <laughs> that, but that's really what it sounded like. It's really tough. It's really tough. How, how are you doing? I'm, I'm hanging in there. I, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fast and furious. You know, this is the last week of classes and the next week is finals week. And, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's just been a long time. It's been a long time that we've been remote and virtual and pivoting and all those other terms we use, but um, I know. we're hanging in there and we're just going to finish strong and take a big, deep breath and try and relax for a few minutes and then gear up for summer and hopefully for a more normal fall. Yeah. And I, I saw like yesterday was that they like asked some students to go home early, you know, yeah. be before finals yeah. week because they were yeah. seeing some more case COVID yep. cases. And it's yep. like, no matter how far we are into this, you never stop pivoting and adjusting. I know, I know, I know. And I, um, I'm fully vaccinated and it's been two weeks. And so I'm, you know, I think I'm good. Right. But um, I mean, you keep thinking yeah. we're getting there, we're getting there. And then you're like, oh, we're not there yet. It's like every time that we turn a corner and like, obviously we have turned a corner with the vaccines and everything, yeah. but every time that we kind of get ahead of ourselves, I know. the I virus know. has a way of just reminding us that this is not quite over and, yet. And even some of the schools we've seen that have had clusters and have had to either quarantine or move students or some students online or whatever. Sure. And it's, it's, it's hard on, I think it's hard on educators just because so much of what we do is, you know, being in the same space and building relationships and getting to know people and, you know what I mean, interacting and, and we can do that through technology, but it's different. And I think a lot of the teachers that I talk with just they're just so fatigued from all the change. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we're fully online. We're this, we're that. And it's, and you know, bless their hearts. They're doing the best they can. And they're, they're just demonstrating incredible creativity and flexibility, but it's just, it's tiring. It's it just is. tiring. I mean, like I've had plenty of conversations with high schoolers too. And that's the thing they say is like, what's yeah. the most exhausting part about this or what's the most difficult part about this? And it's like, it's just the whiplash of being yeah. like, schedule changing and then being uh, constantly being on the verge of another schedule change, whether it be yeah. we're gonna move more in person, or maybe we're going to have to yeah. pivot back, whatever. And so much of teaching and effective teaching is really building routines so that you can focus on the teaching and learning and you don't have to focus on like the structure and the organization and the processes and procedures and, you know, how do we do this and how do we turn in assignments and how do we structure this um, so that usually you lay that groundwork at the beginning of the year or at the beginning of the semester. And then once that groundwork is laid, you can do the work of teaching and learning. And it feels like so much time keeps getting rewound. Okay, now that we're going to be, you know, like in some situations, teachers are teaching to some kids in the classroom and some kids online at the same time. Yeah. And so like, okay, now I need to come up with a way to manage that. And then it changes. How many days a week are we doing that? No, we're fully online. No, we've got more people in the classroom and, you know, just so much time and, and energy being spent figuring out how to navigate the routines and the structures and the procedures that are sort of the foundation upon which then we can do our teaching and learning. Cause we don't have to worry about like, you know, how do assignments get turned in or how do we form groups or, you know, what do we do for, you know, whatever, <laughs> for, these yeah. for these different components of, of the day. And I think that that's been a piece that from a technical side, um, 
has just really taken so much energy for teachers. And one of the things I've enjoyed seeing is a lot of the teachers' workspaces that they've created, Yeah. whether they're in their classroom or whether they're at home, um, just seeing just how they've created like just these structures where they're like literally just, just like glued to their computer, but you'll see they'll have three or four screens and they've got, you know what I mean? Like all these, I've seen all some these real things. Tony Stark monitors where you're yes. turning around and moving to touch screens. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And most of it's been pieced together. You know, they've figured it out on the fly and they've kind of pieced it together with, you know, rubber bands and duct tape to come up with a way to make this work. And um, it's just, you know, I, it's just, it, it's been exhausting, not just, but a lot of people I think are looking at it being exhausting, but not necessarily thinking about one of the reasons that it's exhausting is because of the constant development of strategies to deal with a new structure that they're right. looking at. And then it's like, okay, once I get that done, then we can teach. And then the next change comes and we have to, yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think that you can stress enough how difficult it is to teach to students in person and remotely at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I recently heard from a teacher who was talking about, you know, how difficult that is, but also with their own kids who are yeah. students. Yeah. And I hope that this isn't a situation that happens a lot, but I fear that maybe it is in this situation where kids that are learning remotely are like, well, maybe I should learn in person because, you know, my teacher can't pay enough attention to me when I'm remote right. because they're right. trying to, you know, interface with maybe yep. it's not as engaging or they have to yep. spend more time going around to the in-person students. So mm -hmm. I hope that isn't a situation where like kids that want to learn remotely will go in person because they feel like that's the only way that they can get like actually engaged with their teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also just the enormous amount of guilt right. that a lot of teachers and a lot of teachers who are parents have been feeling, um, you know, there's just not enough time. There's just not enough bandwidth. There's just not enough of that person to be able to do all of those things at the same time. And then if they have their own children who are learning at home or, or you know, part-time at home, um, you know, trying to juggle all of those things at the same time, I think there's just an enormous amount of guilt and frustration that they're not doing enough that people are feeling. And early in the pandemic, like teachers are heroes and everybody was like, yay, teachers. And yes, we'll put I signs up in the yard. Yes, yeah. Yes. And I did, a, I did a perspective on that very topic. And I think that um, sadly, the general perception is not as favorable right now. I think it's like, well, teachers, you know, some people, you know, I think some people are frustrated and like, well, teachers should just go back into the classroom or teachers should just do this or they should just do that. And I think that's very disheartening for a lot of teachers who have been literally trying to move mountains to, to figure out how to reach their students and to figure out what they can do and to just have some, some, you know, some negative comments and some negative perceptions and like in, in some communities you see signs, you know, kids need to be in school five days a week and, you know, Yes, and teachers want that too, but they're also concerned about the safety and, you know, COVID rates and if they're ticking back up is being face-to-face -face safe and is, is that really something that, that, you know, we need to do it all 
cost or if that's the goal, we need to figure out like when is it the right time to do that. And so I just feel badly that there's been, I think, additional stress and guilt and anxiety placed on teachers in terms of, of some of that negative perception or some of the rhetoric that we're, you know, hearing and seeing in the media and on social media and like I said, yard signs even. Yeah, I think that misperception is is kind of strange too, because you think about that, I, like you said, I think that there is some discourse that's like teachers don't want to be in school five days a week. And you're like, that's what school is. <laughs> that's like yeah, what I, everyone I wants honest, to get to. Yeah, I honestly don't know any teachers who don't want to be back in the classroom, but some of them are concerned if they have underlying health conditions, if they're pregnant, if they have a family member who lives in their home who is um, you know, immune compromised. There's a lot of those variables, but um, most teachers that I've talked to desperately miss being in class with their student. You know, it's, it's difficult. And most people, when they think about their work, you know, they do a job, they're not necessarily while they're doing their job, managing the learning and the social, social, emotional experiences and the academic growth of 20, 25, 30, or more young people all at the same time, while concurrently being responsible for student learning outcomes and meeting and meeting, you know, academic standards. And it's a lot, it's a lot to juggle and trying to do it, you know, in a hybrid format where some kids are in the room in front of you and some kids are on the screen and many students who are on the screen choose not to put on their cameras for a number of reasons. It makes it very difficult to teach to, you know, little black boxes on the screen, because so much of what we do with teaching is, you know, reading the student's reaction and being able to see if they get it or if they look frustrated or if they look confused and, you know, all of that. Plus just so many of the things that give us energy to teach, we've been deprived of during this pandemic. So seeing the aha look on a student's face, or dare I say, you know, the little child who, you know, comes over and wants to give you a high five because they just accomplished something. You know, yes, we can kind of do those things online, but it's just not the same. And so um, it's just been a very difficult experience for all of us. I think it's been difficult for children and for teachers and for, for families. And it's, it's, it's been a long haul. It's been a long haul. I hope we're coming out the other end soon. I do too. You know, one of the, we mentioned like the social emotional aspect of this. And one of the images about education in the last year that's been like stuck in my head is a conversation I had a couple months ago with a social worker who was talking about this, these experiences they've had where, like you said, you go into, you know, one of these meetings with, with one of your students to try to talk to them about something. And they have the camera off and they also have the audio off. Yep. So you're kind of just chatting, speaking into the abyss, hoping that there's yeah. someone on the other or, side and you're waiting right. to see if the chat box will yep. come alive and they'll type yep. something in there. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's a concern too, because, you know, we're hearing a lot of people talk about like learning loss. And I really don't like that term because yeah. the students haven't lost any learning. They've lost opportunities to learn in the ways that we had been built to, to teach. But, you know, really thinking about um, 
all the amazing things that students have done during the pandemic, just how resilient and creative and flexible all they've learned about technology, the ways that they've, you know, just just shown their ability to kind of roll with it. Okay, we're doing it this way. We're doing it this way. Just the incredible resilience. And um, that's been incredible. And we don't hear a lot about that. And so, you know, the, the, the social emotional components are definitely a concern because um, a lot of students are really struggling because they've lost so much during the pandemic and the extracurricular experiences and field trips and recess and, you know, all the milestone things for like middle school and high school students that, you know, should be happening, but haven't been. And, you know, that, that oftentimes is what really motivates kids to want to engage with school are those things, you know, and, and the social aspects. And so that concerns me immensely. And then just hearing, you know, about some of the, the struggles that students are having because they don't necessarily have that structure um, and that support available and the toll that that's taking on them um, in yeah. terms of their mental health. And um, that's, that's an enormous concern. Yeah. And, you know, you are a, a teacher of teachers mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about, we talked. We talked about the technology component about of this, the mental health component of this, and I've been really interested in asking people lately, especially you know people like you who are you know, in leadership positions, about like, do you feel like at this point you are able to do more reflecting about the year that we've had in this, and try to pull out some of those silver linings or look at some things that are going to be changed even beyond the pandemic or does it just feel like you're kind of still too much in it to be able to start looking back at it like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that um, we have had a lot of conversations about what are those silver linings from the pandemic? What are the things that are working really well or the things that we've started to do that we want to continue doing? Yeah. Um, and so I think we will see some changes. Um, in fact, um, uh, you know, we're talking about, for example, um, early clinical and student teaching supervision. We have found that remote supervision has actually been probably more effective in many situations um, than in person, because oftentimes with the in person, the supervisor has to rush from one classroom to another. They have to drive to another school because they're going to be observing the next student teacher. And so many times those conversations are very rushed or are cut short. Um, and um, we have found that the ability to um, connect um, remotely has really provided more opportunity for feedback and for reflection and for conversations. So that's just one example of something that we anticipate, you know, maintaining some aspect of virtual supervision into the future. Um, but yeah, we've been having a lot of those kinds of conversations, both internally in the College of Ed and with our school partners. And mm -hmm. so the conversations with school partners has really been interesting learning from and listening to them talking about what some of the silver linings are and what some of the ways are are that they plan to use technology in the future. Um, and just off the top of my head, some of the things that we're hearing school partners talk about is just how effective um, parent-teacher conferences have been because of the technology and the number of um, families that participated 
is much higher than when they were doing them face-to-face -face in schools and talking about just the increased communication with schools because now we've kind of opened up these technology tools that make it much easier for teachers and um, parents or family members to connect you know so those sorts of things also with the technology talking to some of our school partners about the ability to differentiate instruction by using technology in ways that maybe they hadn't done before mm. so for um you know, thinking about meeting the needs of different kinds of students in a classroom. And while if some of them could use this technology tool, because some kids are excelling right now with remote teaching and learning. And how do we learn from that and provide those opportunities moving forward so that we can still, you know, reap those benefits. But yeah, we've been doing a lot of reflection, but we are kind of still in the midst of it. And so I'm hoping that summer is going to be a good time to sort of think about, okay, we've done some reflection, let's do some planning. And let's think about how we then um, will implement those things moving forward in the fall. And, um, you know, we're fortunate that um, our, our school partners, you know, we meet with them regularly. And um, we do have some meetings planned for just that topic to right. say, you know, what are you going to do? You know, what's going to be different? You know, what things are going to go back to the way they were, just so that we're informed and aware of that as partners, but also that informs our preparation of teachers. Yeah. Thinking about the ways in the past, for example, that we've taught them to use technology. Well, now that that's just expanded exponentially with the different tools that are available and the different ways to use those tools. And, you know, I think that it gives us an opportunity to really look at our curriculum, to really look at the structure and expectations for our clinical um, courses and student teaching to make sure that we are preparing our teacher candidates for the reality of the kinds of schools and classrooms they're going to be in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that the snow day is probably gone. I doubt that we'll have snow days in the future because I suspect snow days will be remote learning days. Um, you know, I think just things like that, that are just going to change and they'll just become part and parcel of the way that we operate in education. And so um, I really hope we don't lose sight of some of the positives that have come out of these things um, and these experiences. But I think there's some stuff that people are just so ready to move on from and be done with. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Do you feel like when you're planning, like, does it feel kind of like a soft reset period for, for education that we've had all of these different conversations? Like you said, recalibrating how we think about technology. I'm sure that that is the same for, you know, trauma-enforced learning, you know, or trauma-informed learning, social-emotional learning. And I'm thinking the same thing about like race in classrooms and how yeah. we talk about those things. Yep. And yep. I know that last, yep. uh, last summer, again, another perspective that you wrote was kind of about teaching needing to become more anti-racist, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like all of these things are maybe you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a soft reset of like, okay, now we can use this time when we're planning and seeing how things have changed to be like, okay, here's how for the future, we can tweak how we do these things or change how we train teachers for them, but yeah. also help teachers who are already, you know, in those classrooms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been, it's been not just the pandemic, that we've right. been dealing with. You're absolutely right in terms of looking at calls for racial justice, in terms of, you know, really, um, really putting a spotlight on racist practices and policies and, and so on that have been present in our society 
um, for, for, for many, many years and really putting a spotlight on it and really, you know, calling people to action to say, you know, that we really need to move forward in terms of adopting an anti-racist um, approach to, to not just teaching and learning, but other aspects in our society as well. And one of the things that's been really interesting is that I think a lot more of our teacher candidates now feel more empowered to have those conversations with their students. I think if maybe five years ago, a lot of, especially a lot of our white teacher candidates were very hesitant to initiate those kinds of conversations. They felt uncomfortable or like maybe they weren't prepared or maybe there would be pushback. But I think one of the positives is that people are talking about race and racism much more openly and much more um, frequently. And like you said, with people feeling more comfortable to have those conversations than they were five years ago, it makes me think of conversations I've had with people in the diversity and equity space about trying to you know, the struggle is which something that we could have seen five years ago or something is when you did have those conversations or try to push those initiatives that a lot of times it felt like a, you know, this is a PowerPoint presentation that we're going right. to give during, you know, equity week. And then we get a pizza party right. once we finish doing this, you know, diversity training. And, it, you know, it's, it's a way of how do we keep, like, how do we incorporate that into everything that we do and try to make it organic and not feel like right. this is the topic of the week and then yeah. we're going to forget about it once we finish the training. Yeah. One of the things that's been really interesting, and I'm so fortunate, I'm a member of our College of Education um, Academic Equity Committee, mm. and it's a committee of faculty and staff and students and um, I'm a member of it and we've had a lot of really interesting conversations about what we can do as a college, but I personally in that space have really been taken by this idea of, um, you know, if we're truly going to move forward in terms of um, promoting anti-racist practices in education, we need to be willing to be uncomfortable and we need to be willing to be wrong and we need to be willing to be vulnerable and we need to be willing to sit in that uncomfortableness it's okay if you're a little uncomfortable you know you're you're growing and learning and and that's how that's how it it works and one of one of my colleagues um uh, James Cohen oftentimes quotes. I think um, James, James Cohen, alumni of this podcast as well. He's okay, been, excellent. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, and, and maybe in that podcast, he used one of one of these quotes that that I think is really important is replace judgment with curiosity. And so many times when it comes to issues of race or diversity, um, people judge, well, you know, that's good or that's bad, or I agree or I disagree or whatever, rather than being curious and saying, well, gosh, I don't understand. I want to learn. I want to understand. I want to, I want to, um, you know, see what your perspective is. I want to, I want to have, have a sense to, to, to learn more and to understand more. That's another really rewarding thread that I've seen sort of be elevated during the pandemic. Just that commitment to saying like, as a teacher, I am a change maker. As a teacher, I am a community builder. As a teacher, I am, you know, about building a better future for our nation, one child at a time. And, and that just, that gives me goosebumps and that gives me the motivation to hang in there and keep doing what we're doing and try and do it better. Even seeing that like in our principal, our principal candidates, you know, mm -hmm. folks who are studying to be um, principals and, you know, the, the commitment that they have and the, the plans that they have for creating these climates in their schools, 
that support all students, but the support teachers to do this kind of work has really also been rewarding because when you think about scaling some of this and, and having a broader impact, you know, we oftentimes think at the teacher level in the individual classroom and that's powerful and that's, you know, the, the quality of the teacher in the classroom is a single biggest predictor of student outcomes. You know, it's enormous. Oh, yeah. um, but then when you multiply that and you think about a school principal who has, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 teachers in their building and the, the way that they create a climate and a, a set of expectations and a, an, an approach to supporting teachers and empowering teachers um, that just creates the, 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 the foundation upon which those teachers can do that great work. Um, and so I'm really impressed by the commitment and the vision and the passion and the enthusiasm of so many of our principal candidates and some of our recent graduates who are principals who are out there doing social justice work at the school level, at the district level, and really trying to move things forward in positive ways. And um, that's also just incredibly encouraging to just yeah. see their vision for what their schools should be and could be and will be. Yeah. Uh, Laura, I wanted to ask a little bit about the work specifically that you've been doing. And, you know, I know that you, know, you have written in a, a lot of academic papers and journals and done research and all these things. If you go on the website just for NIU, it's, it's a long list of all of the things that you've been published in. I'm curious, just during the pandemic, have you has it changed the way that you do all that stuff? Have you been able to do as much of that kind of research and writing? And has the pandemic shifted some of the interest that you have in writing about? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, in fact, most of the writing that I've been doing in the last year has really been focused on issues of equity and anti-racism in education mm. and really trying to use um, you know, my voice in professional journals aimed at different populations um, to really sort of amplify that message. Not that I'm an expert in that area, but that it's really been an awakening for me in terms of the fact that, you know, if we don't, if we don't adopt that sort of equity mindset and look at our students and their families from an asset-based perspective, all the great pedagogy, all the great curriculum doesn't really matter. And so, you know, it's really sort of reset me in thinking about that. And in fact, I'm working on a, a book right now on um, literacy assessment, which doesn't probably sound all that interesting to most folks, but um, we're really looking at literacy assessment as a lever for equity in education and reframing how we think about assessing our students in literacy and learning about them as individuals and as um, in terms of their literacy and their linguistic and language capabilities, in terms of really thinking about the provisions or the assets that they bring to the learning situation. And so in this particular book project, my colleagues and I um, are really thinking about, you know, how do we frame assessments so that we're identifying student strengths and then using those strengths to build um, teaching and learning experiences that will, you know, um, uh, escalate students' progress. How do we really um, understand students' um, literacy and learning identities and use that knowledge and that information to inform the way that we teach them? And really thinking about, um, you know, 
using assessment not as a way to evaluate and label and put a grade or a number or a rating on students, but use it as a tool to better know and understand our students so that we can more effectively teach them. And that's been a really interesting project because we had started it before the pandemic. Yeah. And it's really taken on a life of its own. And um, we're very excited about it because the feedback that we've gotten from our editor and from the reviewers is finally, like this kind of book is going to fill a hole where, yes, you can learn the technical side of assessment, but, you know, that's not really the value of assessment. The value of assessment, when you think about it, is, you know, sitting side by side with a student and interacting with them to be able to understand how and what they understand and how they learn and how they um, how they present at the learning situation so that we can then effectively support them wherever they are. And um, so, so I think that, you know, I've continued to engage in research and writing, but I think that that focus on um, equity and anti-racism has really taken a very prominent role in the, some of the projects that I've been working on. And that's been helpful to me also to be able to learn and to be able to be honest with the reader and say, you know, I'm learning this too. And I'm not presenting this as I know everything or that I have all of the answers or that I know the best way to do things. But here's a way we can look at these issues. These are some of the questions I'm grappling with. These are some of the insights that others have shared with me. These are some of the insights that I gleaned from the research. And maybe they will help you as you think about these things as well. And so um, there definitely has been a bit of a, a shift in some of the, the research and the publication work that I've been doing lately. Yeah, for sure. You know, to me, that sounds like part and parcel of all sorts of conversations that have been happening in education, right, around assessment and what that means, right, is that maybe in the past these things were maybe a little static or not, we didn't think of it as on an individual level or even with equity in mind. So that makes sense to take that conversation and apply it to something like literacy, right? Yeah. Which has been something that you've been focused mm -hmm. on, research on for pretty much your whole career, right? Yeah. 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 And I did want to, speaking of your whole career, I did want to ask you a little bit more that kind of get into the origin story of kind of how you got into education in the first place really quick, if you, if you will. And I'm curious, you know, this is a show about inspirational educators. People, you know, are, are nominated because they've left a really an impression on their, their students, right, or their families. And I know that for a lot of educators, they had an experience where mm -hmm. they were inspired by an educator that they mm -hmm. had earlier on. Did you have an experience where, you know, I know I also know a lot of educators, their parents were mm -hmm. <laughs> educators as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but did you have an experience when you were younger with a teacher that kind of inspired you to go down this path? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had many. I was very fortunate in that regard. <laughs> um, I had many of those people who were those teachers, right? Yeah. Um, but when I was in kindergarten, um, my teacher's name was Lori Yazel. And, another Lori. Um, yeah, spelled, spelled differently. Oh, okay. Spelled differently. Spelled L-O-R-I. We'll we'll but um, she was um, she was amazing, and she made learning fun. And she was young, and she was energetic and dynamic. And I loved being in kindergarten. And I thought to myself, like. Hmm, being a teacher would be cool. Um, my dad was a teacher at the time. And so my dad started bringing stuff home from school. So old workbooks and, you know, school supplies. And so um, 
you know, I did the proverbial, you know, you set up a classroom in the basement. I knew you, I knew, I, I knew teach, it was going to be teaching the stuffed animals or something. Whomever, <laughs> whomever would listen. I'm the youngest child. So my older sisters weren't so game on that, yeah. but my younger sisters really motivated me because um, they would say mean things like, um, well, you're just a baby. You can't read, you can't do this. And so I worked really hard. And so I showed up at kindergarten and I, I could read. And um, Mrs. Yazel was, um, probably ahead of her time, because this was many, many years ago, but, you know, she would have different things for me to do when the kids were maybe learning sight words, and I already knew those sight words, and so um, I, I, I think this, the seed was planted there, and then I had her again in third grade, same teacher, really? she moved up to third grade, which was really remarkable, and, wow. you know, she continued to inspire me, and, you know, taught me things that, that, um, you know, maybe we're a little ahead of the curriculum, but, um, probably the biggest, most transformational experience for me as a young person was when I was in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, I was one of those annoying kids who would get all their work done really, really fast. And then I would read, and then I would be like, is there something else I could do? And so my teacher arranged for me to go down to a first grade classroom and help a little boy named Nikki, who, who was struggling with learning to read. And so I was supposed to go down every afternoon and tutor him. They didn't tell me what to tutor him, how to tutor him. So I wrote my own little worksheets and brought things and had my dad go to his school and bring me, you know, books and things that I could do. And so I sat with him. And after about a week, things started to click and he started to understand some of the things I was teaching. And I got hooked because I saw that light of learning in his eyes. And I don't think I probably did much to contribute to his growth trajectory, but there were little moments where like he understood something or he could do something. And I thought to myself like, wow, this is really amazing. So that was when I decided, yeah, you know, I really do want to be a teacher. And so, um, I'm fortunate to have had that experience. It was just, again, um, my classroom teacher kind of saying like, well, let's give her this opportunity and this kid needs help. And probably also she just wanted me to not keep saying, is there anything else I can do to help you? <laughs> you probably thought it was a good idea to get me out of the classroom and, and move me on. But um, I, I, um, I, 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 in my mind, I can actually see that moment. Like we were sitting in the hallway, we were sitting in little first grade desks. I was sitting next to him. Um, and, and like just something opened up in my brain that was like, yeah, this is, this is what you're meant to do. And it's interesting too, that it wasn't just, I need to be a teacher, but also that like reading and literacy yeah. was even a huge part, instrumental part of that, even absolutely back to the beginning of that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another really pivotal point for me was when I was in second grade, um, my teacher, Mrs. Lowe, um, we were at the library and the children were supposed to get their library books from a certain area. And it was like the picture book area. And she yeah. pulled me aside and she said, come here. And she showed me the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and oh, yeah. Caddy Woodlawn and a number of other books. And she said, these, these are the books you should be reading. And I'm like, but we're not supposed to be over in this part of the library. This is like and, a real like restricted section. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, was, it was, it shouldn't have been, but that's how it yeah. felt as a, as a yes. second grader. And she's like, no, these are the books that you should read. And um, that opened a world for me because I was an avid reader, but I was kind of reading those other books that my classmates were reading. And so it opened up all of these chapter books and biographies and all everything. All that Nancy Drew. Absolutely. Trixie Belden. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah I um. <laughs> I was grateful for that because um, she would also just let me go down to the library when I got my work done and just read. And I've been a voracious reader ever since. 
And um, so I was grateful that in second grade, she opened up the world of all these books to me that, um, you know, that I thought weren't available. So, yeah. I had one more question about your career trajectory mm-hmm. and how that all came about. I'm curious because you, you taught middle and elementary school mm-hmm. reading and language arts, right? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Indiana, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Doing my research there. There. Yes. <laughs> and I'm curious at what point did you go from being in the classroom and wanting to do that to wanting to be an educator for educators? Yeah. Um, you know, um, like most things, it's kind of complicated, but um, so That's when I life. went, yeah. so, um, so I knew I wanted to be a teacher. When I went to college, I was fascinated by this idea of being a college professor mm. because I went to a very small liberal arts school. And so I had some of the same professors over multiple yeah, times, got to know them and was just really fascinated and just really thought like, gosh, that's really interesting. I never really thought about teaching adults who might want to be teachers. Hmm, interesting. So that idea was planted in my brain. I went off, I taught middle school, I taught elementary school. I worked as an educational therapist in an acute care psychiatric hospital for a couple of years oh, wow. where I taught children in grades four through eight. So I was their school while they were, um, while they were in the ho- in this acute care hospital. No um, and then I transitioned them back to their schools usually, or to some other level of program that they might need. I and so that as was I really impactful, it was, I've never yeah. taught more kids how to read in my life than in that context, but that's wow. another story. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, that I did in that role was I met with the school partners and talked to them about what we had been doing in my classroom with their students and helped transition them back to their, their home classroom, their, their, their school. And so in doing that, I was invited to do a lot of professional development for teachers. And in doing that professional development for teachers, I began to think about maybe this is a way that I can have more impact that I can teach teachers. And so at that point um, was when I began thinking about, um, you know, moving my my career path um, toward becoming a teacher educator. And so that was kind of the, the moment for me was, you know, when a lot of these teachers would come to me and say, well, you know, how do you do that? Can you show me? Can you come to my classroom? And I started thinking, you know, that 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 was really rewarding because then instead of maybe just impacting that one student, I could impact many of the students in that teacher's classroom or many students in many teacher's classrooms. And so that was um, that that was the point where that light bulb came on for me. And then I remembered how much when I was an undergraduate student, I really admired my professors and really thought about, you know, how how exciting it would be to be able to work with young people in their preparation to become teachers. And so, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned like feeling like you can impact more people at once, right? And I'm sure that as the dean of the College of Education, people ask you a lot of macro questions about Mm -hmm. the state of education and everything like that. I am curious to ask you, this is the last question I've got for you, and we might have answered it throughout the course of our conversation as it is, but if someone came up to you and said, Lori, what's the biggest issue in education that people aren't talking about enough? what would you say? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, that people aren't talking about enough. Um, I think, I think the purpose of education, I mean, I think that we've gotten, I think we've gotten waylaid into thinking that the purpose of education is for kids to get certain scores on standardized tests or to come out college and career ready 
um, you know, those, those sorts of terms. I think we've lost sight of the fact that the purpose of education is to help people become educated. And what that means for different people is, is different. And so I think that the conversation that we need to be having is, you know, how do we provide meaningful educational experiences where we're not deciding what uh, a student's trajectory or career path or opportunity is, but we're giving them access and opportunity and hopefully opening doors for them, but helping them be educated people who can think critically, who can read and analyze things, who can make informed decisions, who can use data to back up their arguments, who can understand complex issues and have the tools and resources necessary to problem solve the things that they encounter in their daily lives or the things that they encounter as they move forward in their education or in their careers. Um, I, I started teaching in a blissful era when we didn't have, um, when I started teaching, we had no state test. We gave standardized tests, but there was no purpose other than we would meet with the parents and the teachers would look at the scores and we would think about how can that inform us. During my time as a, um, as a classroom teacher, um, state standards, state testing started, and I saw education shift significantly. And I saw it narrow, and I saw it become more focused on the test and those specific standards. And I'm not against assessment. In fact, I am kind of a literacy assessment person. <laughs> but but I, I worry that we've become so focused on those narrow indicators that people external to the classroom have put right. forward and said, this is the way we judge whether a student is making progress. This is the way we judge the efficacy of that teacher. This is the way we judge the effectiveness of that school or that district. Um, and I think we've lost sight of the fact that the purpose of education is to educate people and to educate people to be informed and to be prepared with the skills necessary to solve the problems and to pursue the opportunities that make sense for them. I oftentimes refer to, um, you know, our, our public schools as the backbone of our democracy and as teachers, mm -hmm. as the, the, the key players in that. And, you know, as we think about a lot of the things that have been happening in our nation, and we think about a lot of the changes in terms of media and in terms of politics and in terms of just general the general public and how people express their opinions yeah. um it it i think drives home for me the importance of we really need to educate people to be able to understand issues and evaluate sources and use data and make arguments that are based on fact and evidence not just gut and feeling. And um, so, yeah, that, that sounds kind of like a strange answer to your question, but I no. think we need to focus more on yeah. educating in education. A, and when you put it that way, you're like, man, it is a responsibility. <laughs> it is an enormous responsibility. And um, teachers are amazing. Principals are amazing and do such fabulous, significant work all day, every day. And most of the time people don't see it. And so um, I appreciate the work that you do to try and put a spotlight on the positive inspirational things that are going on in education because they are happening in classrooms, on Zoom 
you know, Zoom classrooms and Google Classroom um, all day, every day. And um, getting those stories out, I think, is incredibly important so that we as a nation understand the value that our educators bring and just the amazing things that teachers and students are doing um, all day, every day, even, even during a pandemic. During pandemic. All right, Lori, well, thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you. Oh, before. my pleasure. Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get amazing guests like Lori. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Wherever you're hearing the podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. And a big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music you hear every episode of the show. You can also hear their episode of Sessions from Studio A on WNIJ, which happens to be hosted by our own Spencer Tritt who designed the Teacher's Lounge logo, so shout out to him. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very, very soon. We'll see you later.